with, let's start with a prayer here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. So we're just going to be quiet with the Lord for a few minutes, or a few seconds. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the great gift of Lent, this time of enlightenment and purification. We ask you to be with us uh, during this evening and throughout this season as we engage in our faith, as we hear the proclamation of, of what you have done. We ask you to bless our ears that you would give us ears to hear, that you would bless my words, that it would be you speaking. Give us this gift to surrender ourselves wholly into your hands. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so, um, I should have thought about this. Uh, so this, this whole series is called The Proclamation, um, and you'll understand in a minute why it's called The Proclamation, uh, but for now that's, that's what it is. And for these five weeks, so I, I realize I'm going to be standing in some people's way, so I apologize for that. I'll try to move around because I naturally do that anyway. So, um, so our one goal for these weeks is, is this. In fact, maybe I can just stand over here is to establish a firm foundation for your life with God. So, so this is the thing. As Catholics, uh, we're really good at like talking about what's required of us as Catholics. Well, actually, in some ways, we're not very good at it, which I'll talk about last week. But, but in some ways, right, we're good at talking about like the details of our faith. We're good at talking about the devotions, about the sacraments, about the commandments, about uh, various things within our faith, talking about Mary and the saints, um, talking about, you know, like the seven last words of Jesus, these kinds of things. We're really good at talking about those things, uh, which isn't a bad thing at all. But I think what, what we can be missing out on sometimes, and this, I think, also expands beyond the Catholic Christian faith, but it goes to, like, the whole Christian faith. What we can be missing out on is building a foundation, right? So if you're building a house, before you even begin to build the house, you need to lay a good foundation, right? Because if you don't have a good foundation, we know this, that... The, the earth is going to kind of shift, and if there's not a foundation, that means the house is going to shift, and that means the house is probably going to crumble over time. And if you're living in a house that you know doesn't have a good foundation, you know that there's a problem that you either need to sell the house and hope the next buyers don't realize there's a bad foundation, or you need to just tear the house down and, and start over, right? Like, you're not going to stay in a house without a foundation. But once you have a good foundation, then you can build a house, and you can be confident living within it. So this is the one goal that we have over the next five weeks, is to establish a firm foundation for our lives with God. And I know maybe a lot of us are thinking, you know, like, I already have a good foundation. And that might be the case. Uh, maybe what I, what I want to propose is that um, it's always good for us maybe to just sort of examine things again. To take a fresh look at things, you know, uh, to let our faith be something that that can become new for us, even if we've been practicing and living out our Catholic Christian faith for decades, right? To let it be something that can come alive in a new way. Okay, so with that, we have kind of um, a theme verse, we could say. 
So a verse that we're going to come back to uh, over and over again, and uh, there are some key words here. So St. Paul says this in the letter to the Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there are three kind of key terms here that we want to look at. The first one is gospel, right? And I'm sure a lot of us have heard this before, uh, that the gospel could be translated as good news. But I think what maybe hasn't been communicated is, is that it's not just good news, right? It's, it's, life, it's meant to be something that's life-changing, right? It's not, it's not like the kind of news that like, you hear a bunch of information. It's like, oh, you know, like, that's really great. No, this is meant to be the thing that actually like changes everything about the way that you look at life. It changes everything about the way that you act, everything about the way that you think, everything about the way that like when you hear the rest of the news, right, it changes how you hear that news. That's, that's what the gospel is meant to be. This good news, sure, but more like extraordinary life-changing news. And I'll give an example of that in a minute. The next one is power, right, which uh, comes from the same root word as dynamite. So this good news, right, it's meant to be something that actually, like, explodes from within us. That when we hear it, our life explodes in the best possible way. And it's like suddenly, right, if there are any clouds or any uncertainties or any, anything blocking us from learning about Jesus and following him, all of that is just exploded and washed away so that suddenly I can see clearly and in seeing clearly, right, it helps me to answer those most meaningful questions in life. Questions that we maybe don't always ask ourselves, right? Like, why am I here? What's, where am I going? What's the purpose of my life? And how do I get there? Right, these, these deeper, underneath the surface questions uh, that, that we need to ask, and maybe, maybe sometimes we don't ask. But when the gospel, when we hear the good news, it explodes in a powerful way that suddenly we can see more clearly to answer those questions. And then the last one is salvation, which again comes from a similar root word as the word for health. In other words, the gospel makes me whole, which implies something, right? It implies that I recognize within myself that I'm not whole, right? That there's something within me that is missing, and that if I'm honest with myself, everything that I do it's like I'm looking for different ways to be filled because I know that there's something missing deep down. And so everything that I do, sometimes I choose ways that might be helpful for filling that, and other times I might choose things that are actually really destructive and I only think are filling me, but they're not actually, right? That, that when I receive the good news, it moves me to a place of salvation where God can make me whole, no longer divided, no longer filled with like anxiety or self-doubt, but instead, I can be one, right? And so this is what St. Paul is talking uh, about and teaching us, that, that the gospel is good, life-changing, powerful, explosive news that ultimately brings myself and us together as one to make us whole. All of this can be summarized in one word, and that one word is kerygma, which is a Greek word that means proclamation, right? So what I want to do and what I'm, I'm proposing to do for the next five weeks is to proclaim to you the gospel, to proclaim to you the kerygma, to be a herald of the gospel, an ambassador for Christ, as St. Paul calls himself. Right? Like that's, that's what I want to do, and that's, that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next five weeks. Um, so 
this is the question, right? Like, what is the gospel? So St. John Paul II, right, two popes ago, um, he had this to say about the gospel. Uh, the initial ardent proclamation by which a person is one day overwhelmed and is brought to the decision to entrust himself, to surrender himself to Jesus Christ by faith. So this is a good question for us to ask, right? Would you say that you have been overwhelmed by the gospel? If I, if, if I was to stand up on Sundays, or Father Lakis and I were to stand up one weekend and just say, this weekend, we just want to ask one question. How many, how many of you parishioners would say that you've been overwhelmed by the gospel? How many hands do you think would go up? I think not very many. Even more so, right, this next one, right? Brought to the decision to entrust himself, to surrender himself wholeheartedly, right? Okay, next question. You can put your hands down, all you, you ten that have been overwhelmed by the gospel. How many of you have been led to a decision to surrender everything that you have to Jesus? One, two, right? Like, not very many, right? Not very many. And this, this, like, this is a problem, hopefully, right? Like, we can see that this is a problem, right? So what, what we want to do is... We want to actually make this our prayer for Lent, maybe, is that, Lord, this year, this year, Lord, whether I've been following Jesus for a few months or whether I've been following him for decades, whatever it is, or anything in between, Jesus, this year, I want you to overwhelm me by your gospel message. I want to be led to this place where I'm... I'm just not going to fool myself anymore. I don't want to fool myself or anyone else anymore. Jesus, lead me to this place where I surrender everything. I surrender my thoughts. I surrender my preferences. I surrender my behavior. I surrender my selfish ways. Jesus, I give you everything. Let me be in that place. And if you're not there right now, that's okay. Right? This, is, this is the goal, though. Okay, this is the best way I've heard to talk about uh, the, the kerygma. Does anyone know what this image is from? The day. The day. Which is when? June 6th. June 6th, 1944, right? So these are the Allied forces landing at Normandy. Right now, if we were to ask the question, why are these guys there? Probably, right, they just want to see the beaches of France. <laughs> Right, or they heard that the coffee in Paris is to die for, literally. Right, no, like obviously they're there to fight a war. Right, and, and, and not just any war, right? They're there to overthrow a tyrant who has brought in his oppressive regime and destroyed this country. They have come to give freedom to people who have been destroyed and oppressed. That's what they're doing there. Right? So, so this, this, this is important because we can answer that, but why is he here? The answer is the same. Jesus has come to earth to go to war. Right? He has come to overthrow a tyrant. Just like just like when the Nazis uh, uh, arrived uh, 
in France, right, or the, the Allies arrived in France, it presupposes Nazis were there, right? It would be foolish if they showed up and there wasn't a war going on. They're like, no, like they're getting out of their boats and they're like ready to fight, and people are like, what the heck are you doing? Right? We're trying, to, we're just trying to enjoy our time. So it'd be foolish if there wasn't a war going on when they showed up. So the same for Jesus, right? He shows up, and it presupposes that there is a tyrant who has already overthrown the territory where Jesus arrives. Right? And this, like, if we can understand this clearly, right, this changes everything, right? Because when we see this clearly, it changes our lives. It changes everything about the way that we see, everything about the way that we think. And it leads us to this place of saying, Jesus, you can have everything. So imagine, imagine you live uh, in France on June 5th, 1944, the day before D-Day. What does your life look like? It's miserable, right? There's no hope. There's no future. I was talking to uh, some of our middle schoolers in our school today, and I was telling them, you know, like we live in America, and we, we ask our, ourselves questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Where, where do you think you might go to college? Or for them, it's like, where do you think you might go to high school next year? For someone living in France in 1944 on June 5th, there, were, there was no question like that. There, like there was no future for them, nothing. And then imagine you wake up on June 7th, 1944, the day after D-Day, and you open the newspaper and you see something like this. It'd be written in French, of course, right? But you see something like this. The invasion has begun. The Allies land at Normandy to fight. What's your response? It's like, this is freaking amazing. Right? Like, I must be dreaming right now, right? Like, you mean people came from thousands of miles away across the ocean to go to war against the, the people who have destroyed my life? <laughs> There's nothing better than this. Right? Like, I, I had no future. I had no hope for my life. And now I can actually start dreaming. I can start considering what my life could be like. Right? Like this, this, you guys, is how we are to receive the gospel, except this is the thing. The gospel is better than this. Right? The gospel is so much better than this. And, and it's something that I think we've just sort of missed out on. And it's not necessarily like anyone's fault. I mean, it's somebody's fault, but there's not a particular person to blame. You know, like... This, this, is, this, is, this is everything. So I think this is a great... So this kind of leads into this thing, right? So to set the foundation for Christianity, right? So if someone was to walk up to you and ask you this question, just think about it in your mind. Don't answer it out loud. If someone was to ask you this question, right? They walk up to you on the street or you get into an elevator with someone and they sort of awkwardly turn to you and they're just like, hey, are you a Christian? Hopefully you say yes, right? But then they say this, great, I've been, I've been dying to know. Like, what's that all about? Like, what do you guys believe? We should be able to give an answer? I think, I think a lot of people would say something like, well, you know, it's, like, it's all about getting to heaven. Or it's all about loving your neighbor. Or, you know, it's all about, it's about finding happiness. Or, you know, like, if you just follow the Ten Commandments, which, those things aren't necessarily false. In fact, they're all a part of Christianity. But again, remember, we're, we're looking to establish the foundation, the base level. So at a basic level, 
Christianity is all about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a claim about a series of events that actually took place in history that people claim to have witnessed, and it took place at the time in the largest empire in the world. And that's what Christianity is all about, right? It's not about this sort of mythical thing or, you know, if you just do the right thing, then, then you're good to go. No, like basic level, right? It is all about what God has done in the person of Jesus. So that's like, we're going to get to that part. But before we can talk about what God has done in the person of Jesus, right, we have to talk about what came before that, right? So when we talk about the kerygma, we can talk about basically four basic points, so the kerygma, the four points are the goodness of creation, which we're going to focus on this week, sin and its consequences, which will be next week, God's response to our sin, which will be two weeks in a row, and then our response to what God has done in the person of Jesus. These are the four points of the kerygma. Or we could maybe ask questions, right? Use these points to, use, to ask questions, to maybe use it for good reflection questions, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is everything so obviously messed up? What has God done to fix the mess? And if he has done something, why is it still so messy? And then, how should we reasonably respond to the action of God in Jesus? So that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next five weeks. Okay. Now, we are going to shift, and we're going to begin talking about this first question, or, or the first part of uh, the kerygma, the goodness of creation, or why is there something rather than nothing? So we're going to look at the Genesis accounts of creation. Before we look at the Genesis account of creation, we're going to talk about how to approach reading the Bible, uh, because this is important. right? The Bible is not a single book. It's a collection of books. It's a library. So if you go to a library... Right, you wouldn't read all of the books in the same exact way. There's a section in the library for nonfiction, there's a section for fiction, there's a section for history, there's a section for science, right? There's a section for poetry or love songs. Right? You don't read all of those in the same way. Right? There's various literary forms. Uh, and it's the same with the Bible. The Bible is not all meant to be read literally. But instead, within the Bible, there are parts that are meant to be read literally. There are parts that are historical. But there are also parts that are poetic. There are parts that are love songs. There's parts that are prophecy. There's parts that are apocalyptic in nature. And so it's really important for us when we read the Bible to know this. Right? And we're, we're going to see an example of, of what, what can happen uh, if we can actually come to a better understanding of this. And then after, uh, after we just have like a, a brief slide or two on that, we're going to look more closely at Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So we're going to read those um, next week as well. So... Uh, when you go home this week, get out your Bibles, blow the dust off of them, and crack them open to read Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Next week is a special focus on Exodus, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, so read that one especially. But you also want to point out uh, Genesis 2. So we're going to look mostly at Genesis 1 this evening. Uh, you're also going to read Genesis 2 and uh, then Genesis 3. Okay, now... There is a document the church has called Dei Verbum, which uh, is Latin for Word of God. So the church has a document that encourages us or teaches us a little bit about how to read scripture. So I've got three slides um, that I'll read, and then I'll just sort of give like an explanation.
Dei Verbum, uh, paragraph 11, says this. Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, holds that the books of both the Old and New Testaments in their entirety, with all their parts, are sacred and canonical, because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author, and have been handed on as such to the Church herself. In composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, they as true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. However, since God speaks in sacred scripture through men in human fashion, the interpreter of sacred scripture, in order to see clearly what God wanted to communicate to us, should carefully investigate what meaning the sacred writers really intended, and what God wanted to manifest by means of their words. To search out the intention of the sacred writers, attention should be given, among other things, to literary forms. For truth is set forth and expressed differently in texts which are variously historical, prophetic, poetic, or of other forms of discourse. The interpreter must investigate what meaning the sacred writer intended to express and actually expressed in particular circumstances by using contemporary literary forms in accordance with the situation of his own time and culture. For the correct understanding of what the sacred author wanted to assert, due attention must be paid to the customary and characteristic styles of feeling, speaking, and narrating which prevailed at the time of the sacred writer, and to the patterns men normally employed at that period in their everyday dealings with one another. Okay, that's a lot. So to sort of summarize, this is the thing. It's not dictation, right? So it's not as though these people were suddenly inspired, oh, I should write something down. And then God spoke to them audibly, like in the same way that you can hear me speak, right? So it's not like they sat down and they're like, okay, okay. Wait, wait, slow it down, slow it down. Like, no, there, there wasn't that, right? So it's not dictation. What's, what's being said is that God knew who he wanted to inspire to write, knowing their gifts, knowing their use of language and how they spoke, knowing the way that they thought, right? Because God knows everything. And so he inspired these particular people to write. And so that's what they did. Many of them probably weren't even aware that they were fully inspired by God and that what they were writing was going to end up to be the inerrant word of God. Right? But this is exactly what God wanted. So that what ended up in the Bible is exactly what God wanted in the Bible. There's nothing missing that he wishes, oh man, I wish this person would have written this. And there's nothing extra like, oh, I wish he would have left that part out. Right? It is exactly what God wanted because in his all-knowing abilities, right, he inspired these people knowing what they were going to write. So it's not dictation, but rather it's through the inspiration as well as the cooperation of the human instrument. There's a challenge for us that we have when we read the Bible, right? We live in the 21st century and we live in America. In other words, we don't see the world the same way that the divinely inspired authors see the world. So that's a big challenge, right? Because sometimes we can read things in the Bible and just think like, that's not right. You know, how could he write that? Doesn't he know that we're in the 21st century and we've, we've developed so much? No, like that's, that's exactly the point, actually, that he didn't know that, right? And so we need to try to, right, go back and, under, and ask the question, how did the author understand what he had written? And this isn't to say that the Bible, the Word of God, can become outdated. That's not to say that at all. But instead, it's meant to be a challenge for us 
maybe to not always try to look at life through 21st century American eyes, but instead to go back and ask the question, how did someone who was inspired by God see the world? And maybe that's how I might want to see the world, right? So what's important is that we wrestle with the text. If we run into scripture passages that are hard to understand or that seem like they don't fit in with our world, right, to actually wrestle with them rather than just dismissing them or rather than trying to change them, to wrestle with them and, and look for help sometimes, right, to find things. There are so many really great commentaries, that is, books that are written to explain the scriptures. There are so many out there. There's so many good podcasts. There's so many good YouTube videos, right? So uh, a really good YouTube uh, series is called The Bible Project. They're not a Catholic group, but I haven't run into anything that seems especially anti-Catholic. Um, the Bible Project, they do a really great job of explaining each book of the Bible, the Protestant Bible, so they're missing seven. Uh, but nonetheless, they do a really good job of explaining things that are in the Bible. Um, anyway, so looking for help and then asking the question, right? When I read something and I interpret it in a particular way, I need to ask the question, is this how they saw things? Right? If I can do that, then I can begin, right? And we're not saying that we have to be scripture scholars, right? We're not saying that you have to like learn Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. It's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that sometimes we just have to put forth a little effort to come to understand rather than just saying, I, I can't read the Bible because I, I just, I always get bored, right? I never understand it. No, instead, like that's a real challenge to say, okay, maybe today you can only read a couple of verses because you have to study a little bit to understand those couple of verses. But then, right, like, then you can actually understand the word of God. Like God speaks to us through his Bible, through his word. And if I, if I can only read two verses, but in the end I come to a clearer understanding of those two verses that God has spoken to me, that's priceless. Right? So this is, this is just a really great way to, to approach reading the scriptures. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to shift and look at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So this is, all of that is important because Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are really important. Uh, sometimes people will read, a lot of times people will read Genesis 1 through 11, and they'll read it as though it is literally true. Right? So chapter 1, how many days of creation are there? Seven. Right? So people will read it as though those are seven 24-hour days. We're going to see this in a minute, that that's not actually what the author is trying to tell us. But instead, the way the author is communicating these first chapters in the book of Genesis, we could say is through poetry. Right? So you know that when you read a poem, if you're able to understand it, I'm not ever really, but if you read a poem, right, you know that I'm not reading something that is literally and factually true. But at the same time, right, if I give myself over to it, I know that the author is trying to communicate something, something beautiful, something difficult, whatever it is. I know that there's something within this poem that I, I need to pull out, right? Or I was, I was talking to the kids earlier about watching a Disney movie, right? We know that animals don't talk. And yet in this Disney movie, the animals are talking. I know when I, when I watch the Disney movie that I'm not supposed to like, watch it as though it's something that's literally happening before my eyes. And yet, what's something we say with just about every movie we watch, right? We ask the question, like, what's the moral of the story? Right? In other words, we know this. We're, we're so capable of pulling out truth principles from things, even though we know that they're not literally true. And this is what we want to look at in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, to look at it as inspired poetry, right? That we're trying to communicate truth in poetic language, uh, which is to say that not everything is to be read literally. For example, right? How many stories of creation are there in Genesis chapters 1 through 11? Two. 
There are two. So chapter one is one and chapter two is another one, right? So like that should tell us, I shouldn't read this literally, right? Another example. So we're gonna look at Genesis chapter one, verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater lights rule the day, which is the sun, and the lesser lights rule the night, which is the moon. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So we see the sun and the moon are created on this day of creation. Which day of creation is it? The fourth day. How do you have three days without a sun and a moon? You don't. So the author is telling us, don't read this literally. Right? Instead, see what truth principle is being written about in a poetic kind of way. And go off of that. Right? That's what's going on. Because this, this, this sparks like a bigger question, right? So like the science community, they all think we're complete idiots if we believe in this stuff. Right? They think like, well, you know, like, if you believe the science, you would know that religion is just this made up thing. Or if you believe the science, you would know that God's not real. Or if you believe in God, then, you know, how could you reject science? Right? That's not at, like, the two don't need to be competing with each other. But instead, they can work together really well because they're trying to answer different questions. Yeah. Certainly, certainly I agree with you. The images are helpful for us to understand. And, um, and it's Yeah, sure. So the images are helpful for us, definitely. Yep. Um, so Christianity versus science, right? So they're, they're trying to answer different questions. Uh, science is really good at answering, like, what or how, right? So science is really good at telling me, like, what, what's going on inside of my body or what's going on in the world, right? Science is really good at telling me, you know, how the light from the sun can hit a plant and photosynthesis can occur and then the plant is able to grow, right? It's really great at telling me those kinds of things. But it's not really great at telling me why that happens, right? Science isn't really good at telling me why I exist, right? Or why I think the way that I think, right? I can maybe talk about, you know, like different endorphins or chemicals in my brain, but ultimately, right, you can ask, like, but why is that, right? Like, do the, the child question, right? Why, why, why? Religion is really good at answering that, right? Really good at answering, like, why do we exist? Why d does anything exist? But not always is it intended to answer, like, the what or the how. 
Uh, but it, so I think the two can work really well together, right? Science is great at communicating truth, but it can't tell us everything about truth, right? Which is maybe a, another big question, right? Evolution versus creation. That there's like this debate, like how did it all take place? I think what we want to talk about more is creation versus chaos. In other words, saying that everything exists for a reason compared to everything just happened to happen randomly. Right, what we're trying to say is that everything exists for a reason. Right? We, don't, we don't know exactly how things took place. And in fact, it's, uh, I believe the church teaches that it's legitimate for a person to believe in like creationism, right? that God created each individual species. Uh, but a person is also free to believe in evolution. The point is that we're looking at everything exists for a reason, right? We're looking at why do things exist, right? Not necessarily like what happened. We, science can help us with that for sure, right? So not to put these like in competition with each other, but instead to work together. So now we want to just look real quick at the, the worldview of uh, creation stories. So we, we know this, that among uh, historical literature, there are more than one creation story. Right, so uh, the ancient Near East had their own set of creation stories. We have our Genesis creation story. Uh, and so we want to look at like the worldview for this. So according to these ancient Near East creation stories, uh, the kind of worldview that reigned was this. I came from nowhere and I'm going nowhere. Right, remember those big questions. Why do I exist and where am I going? For these, it's just like, I, I, I didn't actually come from anywhere. Right, I just happened to be. And there's nowhere for me to go afterwards. And so what happens then is what reigns is despair, meaninglessness, and hopelessness, right? Like there is no purpose to life. And so what happens is I want to maximize pleasure and avoid pain. Right? I want to exploit others for my own pleasures as much as I possibly can. Because after all, why bother being good? If there is no future after this life, if there's no purpose to my life, well, shoot, nice guys finish last. Right, so I'm going to do everything, like, it, you know, so take an honest look at our world that we live in today, right? This is back then and now. And I'm not necessarily saying in this room, right, but I'm saying look at the world, right? This is, this is something that, that's present, very prevalent even now. Now, compare that to the worldview of Genesis. We see that in Genesis there is one God, and that one God is really good, that he creates everything freely out of love, right? No one forces him to do it, and he does it from nothing, and he does it effortlessly. It doesn't cost God anything to make anything, right? And everything that he makes is good. In Genesis chapter 1, right, the line we see over and over again, and God saw that it was good, right? He saw that it was good. Everything that he makes is good, or at least was good in the beginning. And then there is a purpose for everything that he makes. The highlight of everything that God makes is the human person, where it says in Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see that the human person is made. So according to the ancient Near East stories, right, man is created only to be a slave. According to the Genesis creation story, man is created in God's own image and likeness, which is quite a difference. Right? In one, 
Man is to be a slave of the gods. In this one, man is to become like God, right? Out of all of the creatures that God makes, we are the only ones that, that are able to represent God on earth, and in fact, we're supposed to, right? He gives us this ability, or he gives us this gift to be made in his image and likeness, and so he wants us to use it. We are made to make God present on earth, right? We're commissioned to exercise dominion over the earth, which is not the same as domination or exploitation, right? The earth is something that belongs to the Lord, and we are his stewards. We are the stewards of God's creation, right? Made to care for it. Human person has a capacity for reason. That is to say that we can think critically. We can assess a situation and we can make decisions based on that, right? We have the ability to think in a way that the other animals don't have, right? We can let arguments develop and lead rather than just relying on our feelings or emotions, right? We can sometimes say that my feelings or my emotions might actually lead me astray and so I can choose otherwise in my ability to think critically, uh, which is really important. What else do we see? We see that human beings are free, right? Other animals are slaves to their instincts. We as, as, as humans, we still have instincts, right? But we have the ability to choose otherwise. I was thinking about this. If you were to set up a table right here and grill a whole bunch of steaks, right? And bring a whole bunch of people into this room. Everyone might walk into the room smelling the steaks and even talking about how they, they love the smell of the steaks, right? And our instincts might be to go right for the table and put one on a plate and start eating it. But what we would do instead is we would walk in and be like, oh man, I, I wonder if we get those. <laughs> but we wouldn't go for them, right? We would restrain ourselves. Whereas if we all left the room and we brought in a pack of dogs to, to come into the room and the steaks were still there, right? They wouldn't think. They would immediately go, because they're led by their instincts, right? So we still have animal instincts because we are animals. But we're also animals that are able to think critically and reason, which is different, right? We're free. We have the ability uh, with God, uh, with the angels actually, to actually be obedient with God, or disobedience, right? To choose, am I going to be obedient to the Lord or am I going to be disobedient to him? which is an important thing to, to recognize, right? That I actually have it within me, that I can choose obedience or I can choose disobedience. There's a difference here between freedom and lawlessness, right? So lawlessness is this mentality that sometimes people can have and to say like, well, you know, like, we're free, we can do whatever we want. And that's not actually freedom, that's lawlessness, right? Uh, that freedom is, is Rather, it's like, a, it's like I'm not attached to my own preferences, or I'm not attached to insisting on my own way, but I'm free to choose what's good, right? I'm, I'm free to choose the thing that's best for the people around me, for myself. And that sometimes, the thing that I want to do, right, that I, I can't just do whatever I want, because sometimes, whatever I want, it just means that I'm attached to my own selfish ways, right? So there's, there's a, a big difference there, that I'm free from my attachments. I'm free from my own ways so that I can be free to give myself away or I can be free to love God and be obedient to him. The purpose of freedom after all is to love, right? Because only a free person is able to love. If a person is not free, then it's not love, it's just an attachment. Um, okay, male and female, he created him. This is a really important point here. So a male does not exhaust what it means to be human and to be an image of God. And a female does not exhaust what it means to be human and to be an image of God. The two are created equal, even if different, right? Even if distinct, 
right? The, the man and the woman are created equally to be an image and likeness of God. Right? We can think of this like the, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? One God, right? So they're equally God, but they're three distinct persons, right? They're, they're, each person has something distinct about them. So too with the male and the female, right? Equally human, even though we're distinct in, in various ways, right? And I know that there's a lot of generalizations there, but it's okay. The problem that we have in our world is that we live in a world that's unfortunately been normed by deformed men, right? We know this, that, that men throughout history have tended to abuse, uh, have tended to exploit, have tended to dominate. And so that's, that's the world that we have kind of either grown up in or that we read about in history. And so then what happens is we end up with women who want to imitate the deformed men, right? And so then what happens is we have men and women competing with each other to almost like see who can be most deformed, right? Like who can have power or superiority over the other? When what we need, in fact, is we actually need healthy men and women standing side by side, working with each other, complementing each other. Right? We need people to be healthy in their understanding of who they are and who the person next to them is so that together we can work to create a healthy world. Right? Remember, the gospel is salvation. It's something that makes me whole. It makes me healthy. Right? So as I come to understand who, who I am in God's eyes, I also need to understand who the person next to me is in God's eyes. And then God says this, be fruitful and multiply. What does that say? It says that sexuality is something that's blessed by God. Right, that there is a plan for sexuality. According to the ancient Near East uh, stories, sexuality is only something for childbearing and for pleasure. For here, God shows that he has some, there's a blessing for it. Uh, and that's not to say that you can't have pleasure out of it, right? And that's not to say, obviously, you can't bear children, but that there's something deeper beneath the surface uh, in God's mind for sexuality. Okay, in Genesis chapter 1, Verses 29 to 30, God says this, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So what does this verse tell us? It tells us that we are creatures. It reminds us that we're creatures, that we're dependent needs, that we have needs. Right? I don't, on my own, I don't have everything that I need. In fact, I need God to give me breath because I am a creature that he has made and that he chooses to hold in existence. And so I need even the next breath that I take from him. And as I go about breathing, right, I recognize God provides for me. Right? That God recognizes that we have needs and he provides for us. Right? He cares for his creatures because he's a good father. That's what we learn. Right? And then the last point here is just to note, nothing dies in paradise. Right? He gives them uh, plant, uh, seed-bearing plants, right? so things that can reproduce even though their seeds are being eaten. Uh, and that's not to say that we all need to be vegeta vegetarians, uh, but just to point out that death was not part of God's original plan. And then to wrap up this first creation story in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, it says God rested on the seventh day, right? So that means that you and I, made in his image and likeness, are created to enter into that rest, right? That we have a need for leisure, which I think is a really good reflection question for us today in the year 2022. How do I find leisure? 
do I find leisure? Right, this is something that I think we, we've in some ways lost because we're just getting busier and busier and busier. And I remember when COVID first started, people were, you know, like when we were locked in our homes, people were, were thinking like, oh, maybe this will help people see that they need to be less busy. For most people, it hasn't, right? For most people, we're, we're more or less back to being just as busy as we were before. Some people, for sure, you know, we, we've learned and uh, adjusted. But anyway, just to point out, right, we have a need for leisure. And so there's a real encouragement for us to take time, which of course is, you know, part of the commandments, right, to rest on the Lord's Day, to take time and do something where I just don't feel pressure to produce anything, right? I don't have to set any records. I don't have to produce anything. I can just be, and I can be at peace and at rest with the Lord. Okay. We are going to shift in focus completely for these last 15 minutes here to look at one verse, and not even just one verse, but one part of one verse uh, in the book of Genesis. During this time, we want to try to really grasp the grandeur of God, to see who he is and who we are to him. So this one verse, and God made the two great lights, the great light to rule, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So sometimes when I read the Bible, um, I'll read, you know, like a chapter or something, and then after I finish the chapter, I remember, oh yeah, there's something in this chapter that I really love, even though I didn't recognize it as I was reading it, right? Because it's something that can just become so familiar that I forget that I actually really love this verse in Romans chapter 12 or something, right? So this, I think, is one of those things, this sort of, this last line, right? He made the stars also. It's, it's, it's as though the author was writing it down, and it's like, may the greater light and the lesser light, oh yeah, and the stars too, right? We could ask the question, how many stars? Right, like I live in, so I, I'm from northwestern Minnesota, the Diocese of Crookston, and we have a lot of farmland up there. Uh, it's a very rural place. So when you go outside at night, uh, especially in the, the smaller towns or if you drive out into the country, right, you look up in the sky and you can see so many stars. Something that, that can sometimes be lost in the bigger city. So when I go back up to the diocese, you guys can come and visit me and we can all go out and look at the stars together. But nonetheless, like how many, how, like how many stars? So uh, when we pray, we have an image of God in our minds, right? I was talking to the students earlier about, you know, like maybe we think of him like the Wizard of Oz, you know, this just like big floating head that, you know, is just sort of like watching us and, you know, speaks with a really deep voice and he's kind of mysterious. Maybe others of us, we think of him like this old man with a really long white beard, you know? Whatever it is, we have an image of God in our minds. And I think, right, as we look at this, I think we undersell that image. We undersell who he is in a big way. He's actually incredibly incomprehensible. He's indescribable. Uh, he's, he's so big. So let's look at this. Okay, so in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, science will tell us there's something like 100 billion stars in the galaxy. There are in the known universe something like 2 trillion galaxies. And science is a little bit divided about this. I was just researching this. It's a little bit divided, but it seems like a lot of people are comfortable suggesting that each of those galaxies has something like 100 billion stars within them. So we're, we're talking like a huge number of stars, right? So imagine this. Imagine you go to the beach, and you get to the beach, and you want to build a sandcastle, right? So you pick up a handful of sand, and just imagine how many grains of sand are in like a handful of sand, right? And you just sort of let it fall through your fingers. And you're going to build a sandcastle where in this sandcastle, every star in the universe is represented by one tiny little grain of sand. How big is the sandcastle going to be? It's going to be five by five by five. Five miles long 
five miles wide and five miles high, a thick block of sand where every grain of sand represents one star in the universe. Like the thing that gets me about that is the five miles high, right? I can imagine like a desert that's five miles bigger, you know, whatever. But five miles high, like it's, it's unfathomable, right? And like, so these are some images from the Hubble Space Telescope. I just really encourage you, when you go home, like Google this, Hubble Space Telescope. Like these, these are pictures, like real pictures that like they're not, they're not artistic. These are real pictures taken from outer space. Like the amount of stars in the sky is incredible. The amount of galaxies in the sky is incredible, right? And he made the stars also, right? Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't include that. No, like, here's, here's another image, here's, here's another image. So our sun, right, so our, our sun that we have, it's 93 million miles away from us and somehow it still heats us in various ways at various times, right? Still, but it heats us, right, enough so that we can live. From 93 million miles away, right? It's, it, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like a small to medium-sized star. And yet, it's way bigger than planet Earth. In fact, within our sun, within our star, you can fit just under a million planet Earths inside of this one star. Which is a lot, right? There's another star out there called Canis Majoris, which is Latin for the big dog. So within this big dog star, you can fit seven quadrillion Earths. What's a quadrillion? Great question. So if you were to count from now to a million seconds from now, it would take you about 11 and a half days. From now to a million seconds from now. If you were to count from now to a billion seconds from now, it would take you 31 years. If you were to count from now to a trillion seconds, it would take you 31,000 years. And if you were to count from now to a quadrillion seconds, it would take you 31 million years. And you can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of this one star. This one star out of 70 sextillion stars. That's the number of grains of sand that you would use in the sandcastle. 76, so a sextillion is is a million quadrillions. <laughs> like, so like, he made the stars also, right? Like, it's, it's incredible how, like, what, what God has done, right? The, it's, it's unfathomable, right? This image of God that we have in our mind, right? I think the, the real encouragement for us is, is to try to expand our minds, right? And we can ask ourselves a question, like, why, is, like, why does this matter, right? It matters because it matters to him. Scripture tells us he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Lift up your eyes on high. Who created all these? He leads forth the starry host by number. He calls each one by name. Right? Science might not be able to tell us the exact number of stars in the universe, but God could if you wanted. Science might not be able to tell us the name of every star, but God could if you wanted. Right? Like, this is all so important. And we can ask this question, right? Out of everything that God makes, right? Which one is his favorite? The answer is you. And not like, not like y'all. Right? Like the Bible, the Bible talks about how God certainly, like he cares about groups and he has his chosen people for sure. But more than that, right? He cares about individual people. He cares about you as though you're the only person in the world. And he looks at you and he says, I hold you in the palm of my hand. 
And you don't have to be anxious because I'm not anxious. You might think that sometimes life is overwhelming and maybe it really seems like it does, but there's nothing in your life that I can't handle. It's gonna be okay. Because I, I treasure you and you are so precious to me. Each one of you. I like this. This, you guys, is, is who God is and who we are to him. It's who I am to him. It's who you are to him. Like you're a treasure to him. Which is so amazing, right? So we can, we can get back to these big questions. Like why am I here? Where am I going? And how do I get there? The answer is the same for all three of them. The answer is love. Why am I here? I'm here simply because God wants me to be, because he loves me. Why are you here? You are here simply because God has chosen you to exist here and now at this time in history, simply because he loves you and he cares for you so deeply. There's no accidents. Sometimes parents can talk about that, right? Like, oh, we had a child, it's an accident. There are no accidents with God. He intentionally chose you to exist now, today. And where, where am I going? He has made me, he has made you, right? In his image and likeness, he has made each of us to return to the source of love. Where am I going? I am made to go back to him, to love. I'm made, like this is the purpose of my life, which we're gonna look at in a minute on the next slide. And how do, how do I get there? I get there by the love of God, which is poured out for me on the cross. And you get there by the love of God, which is poured out for you on the cross. And in response to that, I love him in return and I love the people around me in return, however imperfectly sometimes. This, this, is, this is it, you guys. To look at what God has planned for us. So 2 Peter, Peter writes two letters. The second one, chapter one, verses three and four, it says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Right, like we considered, we considered the majesty and the grandeur of God. And now St. Peter is telling us that we're called to share that with him. That he wants us actually, right, to become like him. It's just incredible to think about. What a blessing and what a gift. How good and generous our God is to us, his creatures. Like, to let yourself be caught in wonder by that. Right? Like, who is this God? And who am I? And yet, he has willed it so. He's chosen me. He has chosen you. Out of love? Amazing. 
So we finished up uh, just some questions, I think, for you to, to reflect on. First one, in your experience, how many Catholics have been overwhelmed by the message of the gospel and brought to a decision to surrender themselves to Jesus? Just think about that. In your group, family, friends, whatever, neighbors, how many among the Catholics would you say have been overwhelmed by the message and have surrendered themselves? And then why do you think that is? Right? So some of us might be like just in extraordinary groups of people, right? And, and like everyone there is like, yeah, we've all been overwhelmed. Okay, great. Why? Like what's different about that? Some of us might say, I don't actually know if a single person I know has been overwhelmed by the gospel. Okay, why? Like what do you, you think has been missing? Next question. Does it make any kind of an impact on you to consider the grandeur of the universe and to consider that God made it all without effort? Right? It didn't cost him anything to make it. He breathes and things come into existence. What kind of, imp what kind of impact does that have on your life? And then lastly, does it make any kind of impact on you to hear that God has a plan for your life to make you like himself? Like, what does that do on the inside of you, in your mind, and your heart? Like, God wants me to become like him. It's amazing. So just spend some time thinking about it. Okay, let's, let's finish with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for the great gift of life that you provide for us. Thank you for showing us how precious we are to you, for showing us how great you are before us. Father, I pray for this community of people that as they spend this week in prayer, fasting, and penance, as they spend this week going about their days, that you'd give them the gift of remembering who they are. I pray that you'd give them the gift of being caught in wonder and awe. Father, let them know your blessing. Let them know your care. Let them know your love as the beginning of the foundation. Begin to draw out of them a deeper faith a deeper kind of love, begin to overwhelm them with the gospel. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, great. Thanks for being here. Uh, yeah. Have a great night. So, yeah, we'll be back next week, same time, uh, Mass at 5.30 if you'd like to come. Otherwise, you can come for 6, 6.30. Uh, there'll be soup again next week. And then, yeah, maybe we'll try to set up the chairs so that we don't have people sitting where they can't see anything. Uh, anyway, God bless you. It's just like a church. I'm right behind you guys. Same meal.